Glen, everybody. So glad that you uh, make River Glen part of your weekend as we continue this series called Insomnia. We started last week talking about how fears lead to a lack of peace, which can lead to insomnia. Insomnia is the inability to fall asleep or stay asleep. And so we started talking about all these different kinds of fears that uh, people have. And so to get us thinking about fears, here's what I want to do. I want to put some pictures up of things that people are afraid of. And if you're scared of these things, I want you to just clap, you know, really nice and loud. All right? Okay, let's take a look at the first one here. How about uh, snakes? Anybody afraid of snakes? I get that. You're like Indiana Jones, okay? You're afraid of snakes. How about this next one here? Spiders. Anybody afraid of spiders? I don't know if you know this, but studies show that we eat eight spiders every year in our sleep. Speaking of insomnia, I want to sleep with one eye um, open at night. Clowns, anybody afraid of clowns? Yeah, quite a few people, you know, terrified of clowns. Clowns never up to anything uh, good. I came across this little video that details uh, more fears. And so take a look at this and see if you resonate with any of these. Well, hopefully you don't uh, struggle with any of those, but odds are you, you, you struggle with something. And uh, all of us have nights, you know, when it's just difficult to fall asleep. You know, I, th- I think it's kind of funny when we, uh, if you have kids, when you bring, the, you know, bring your baby home, you know, you got this room and uh, you put all, the thing, all these things in the baby's room to help them sleep at night. You know, mobiles and lights and music and stuffed animals. And then as kids get older, they don't want that stuff, you know, around anymore. But you know what? As we get older, uh, we start to bring that stuff back. Lights, music, maybe not mobiles, but uh, other things that help us fall Asleep, And so I brought a couple sleep aids up here, uh, like uh, uh, earplugs, you know. I don't know if you use these, maybe the, maybe the foam ones or, or the uh, wax uh, ones. I take these along when I travel in case there's some noise that keeps me up at night. And uh, then there's this, uh, which is a uh, white noise uh, machine. Maybe you've got one of these or maybe you've got this on your iPhone, some sound effects, some music that you listen to. This is mine right here. I love this thing. Anybody else use one of these? At, at night, yeah, they're great, you know. Uh, I like the uh, waterfall. I, I, it's right by my head. I listen to the waterfall every night. It's uh, very uh, relaxing, uh, except my wife doesn't really care for it, so it's not real relaxing for her. But I fall right to sleep, you know, with this. Here's one more little sleep aid. There's a lot of these. I thought this one was interesting, the chillow. Uh, this is the frozen pillow that uh, helps prevent headaches and uh, cools your entire body. Probably not a big seller in Wisconsin this time of the year, but uh, maybe it helps some people, the uh, chillo. There's just all kinds of sleep aids. And so, you know, we've all got a routine. You got a routine. I got a routine that helps us fall asleep. But the problem is there's some nights when you just lay there and you stare at the ceiling and you just can't fall asleep and the sleep aids don't help. Last weekend we said that some of us have this fear that something bad might happen. And we think about it, we obsess about it. We said that God is bigger than our fears. And God gives us peace that helps us uh, get more and better sleep. But today we're going to talk about a fear that all of us wrestle with at some period in our life. This is a big fear because it has God connected to it. Sometimes what keeps us up at night is we start thinking about the bad decisions that we've made. We start thinking about the ways that we've hurt and let other people down. We start thinking about certain failures in our past. And here's how this fear plays out in our mind. We wonder, God, have I, am, I, am I good enough? God, have I done enough? God, have I done enough to make up for these things that I've done wrong? And so here's the fear that we're going to talk about today. I'm afraid of disappointing God. Now, what's interesting about this fear is uh, I think 
it affects all of us, regardless of what you believe, regardless of where you're at on your spiritual journey. I mean, even if you're not even sure what you believe in God, I bet there have been times when you have wondered, if God is real, am I, am, are he and I okay? Is God on my side? Those of us that follow Jesus, we might not say this out loud. We would give the expected answer, the church answer. But I think if you're really honest, I mean, there are times you wonder, am I okay with God? Are, are things, am I, am I on the right side uh, with, with, with God, or, uh, with, 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 in the right side of things with, with God? Now, the reason that we wrestle with this is because all of us have regrets. Sometimes I'll be in a conversation, maybe you've had conversations like this, and we'll start talking about regrets. And somebody will say to me, I don't have any regrets. I have no regrets in my life. And I'm like, really? No regrets? Reminds me of this uh, tattoo. Maybe you've seen this uh, picture. Uh, no regrets. Yeah, uh, uh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Personally speaking, I've got many regrets. You know, I can't tell you how many times with my kids, I've got three kids, how many times I've said something and then I think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And I can never take that back. I can't tell you how many times I have let down my wife, Marnie. And I know as a child growing up, I mean, there were many times I disappointed my parents. Like many teenagers, there were times I got in trouble and, and got caught. But I remember one time in high school, I did something I shouldn't have done. And my dad found out. And because of the nature of what I did, my dad said something to me. I, I don't remember him ever saying this before. He said, Ben, I'm disappointed in, in you. And my parents took away some privileges for the rest of the summer, which was, which was difficult, but what was far more painful for me is knowing I disappointed my dad. I hurt my dad, and I knew that, that I had deeply failed. And to think that you and I can do things that disappoint God and hurt God, uh, there is a deep sense of failure attached to that. Now, here's a word that describes this feeling, that describes this fear, and it's this word right here, uh, guilt. And, uh, you, know, you know, many of us know what guilt feels like, and we know that we don't like uh, that feeling. That's why we say things like, you know, don't put that guilt on me. Don't put me on a, on a, on a guilt trip, because we, we know how, how bad uh, guilt makes us feel, and it causes us to lay awake at night, because here's what guilt says, I owe you and so you do something to hurt somebody else, and you feel like you owe them. Maybe you owe them an apology. Maybe you owe them some money. Maybe you owe them a childhood. Maybe you owe them faithfulness. And this is not just with other people. It's also true with God as well. That's why we lay awake at night and we wonder, God, have I done enough? Have I done enough to make up for these things that I've done wrong? Think about it this way. I want you to imagine... Uh, you know, these, these are three options for how God feels about you right now. How do you think God feels about you today? You know, some of you probably would say, well, God feels indifferent. You know, he's not really impressed with me. He's not really interested in me. Or some of us might say, well, God feels uh, disappointed. God feels sad because of, of what I've done. God's going, you know, I can't, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe I created this guy. Or maybe you'd say, God is pleased, you know, with me today. God's really happy with me today. You know, how do you think God feels about you, you know, right now, today? You know, I think if we're honest, I think, I think most of us would say this one, you know, right here. We think God is disappointed. God is sad because of the things 
uh, that we've done, and it keeps us awake at night. And so I want to briefly walk through a few different ways that we react to our guilt and our regret and this feeling that we have disappointed uh, God. And you decide which one of these you gravitate towards. Now, you don't have to raise your hand or nudge uh, your neighbor, but try to figure out which one is yours. Here's, here's the first one. I'll fix it. Yeah, God, I know I've disappointed you. I know I've let you down. But God, I'm going to make up for it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. Just, just give me enough time, God. And, and some of us, maybe as we get older, you know, we start getting nervous because we're tallying up, you know, the things we did in high school and college. And we start thinking, I don't know if I have enough time to make up for what I did. But God, give me time and I'll make up for it. But here's the problem. How do you know when you've done enough? I mean, what's the goal? What's the number? What are you shooting for? The problem is we never know if we've done enough. That's why many of us live with this perpetual feeling, I got to do more. I got to do more. And it leads to exhaustion. And the great effort that we put forth can actually lead us to feel morally superior to other people, which is disappointing to God. Here's another reaction some of us have. Hope for the best. In other words, we hope that God grades on the curve. And so, you know, when we go to, when we die and go to heaven, we're going to stand before God and uh, God's going to say, okay, you're not Mother Teresa, you're not uh, Billy Graham, but you're not Adolf Hitler. You're somewhere in the middle. Come on in. God's going to be busy talking to other people about their sins and we're just going to kind of slide on by. You know, it reminds me of the old joke about going camping and uh, the bear, a bear comes to attack. You don't have to run faster than the bear. You just need to run faster than one of your friends, right? You know, that kind of mentality. That's kind of what you're doing. You're hoping for the best. You're hoping God grades on the curve. But you never know, and it keeps you up at night. Another common reaction is it's not real. God's disappointment in me, not real, which is how I react when something breaks in our house that needs fixing. I I just ignore it. Maybe it will fix itself. Maybe it will self-heal. Maybe it will just go away with, with, with time. And many people choose the path of denial rather than facing the possibility that God might be disappointed with us. And so we distract ourselves with our job, with our education. We fill up our schedule with activities. Maybe we self-medicate because we think, if I don't think about it, then it's not real. But eventually it comes back and wakes us up again. Here's another one we struggle with, and that is, who cares? God's disappointed in me. Who cares? You think I'm a sinner now? Wait till I kick it up a notch. I'm going to Vegas this weekend. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to do whatever I want because it doesn't matter. But eventually, it's going to lead you to a place where you're going to have even more regret. And it keeps you up at night. And here's the last one. I'm toast. Too many weekends in Vegas. Too many years of of who cares, and now, you know, I'm done. I'm finished. I failed this test from God. There's no extra credit. God, I just don't see any way that I could ever make things up uh, with, with you. And maybe some of you are feeling pretty hopeless right now because you disappointed God. The Apostle Paul wrote most of what we call the New Testament in the Bible, and he really understood what it means to disappoint God. He wrote this verse. If you're a church person or if you've read the Bible, you may be are familiar uh, with this verse that really gets at the heart of uh, what we're talking about today, the fear that we're talking about. Here's what he says. He says, he says, for all, not some, all, have sinned. Sin means to miss the mark. 
and fall short of the glory of, of God. In other words, the test requires an A plus and we all missed one. And there's no extra credit. The only person who aced the test is Jesus. In other words, you're out in the middle of the ocean, days and days away from land. You get a hole in your boat. Your boat is filling up. It doesn't matter if you're Michael Phelps. You cannot swim that far. You're done. And this is the bad news today. Okay, for those of us who are afraid that we've disappointed God, we have. All of us have disappointed him. But here's the amazing news because of what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And our account is stamped, not guilty, paid in full. That's the legal side of what Jesus did for us. But here's the problem. You can accept Jesus as a leader and forgiver of your life. You can get baptized into him. You can have the Holy Spirit living in your life. You can have your sins forgiven. But it's still possible to lay awake at night afraid that you have disappointed God and there's no way he could ever use you again. And so what do we do with this fear? If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 18. If you don't, we'll put the scriptures on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, take that one in the chair back in front of you. That's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a, a Bible. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus told. A parable is nothing more than a short story with a spiritual meaning to it. But this parable that Luke records for us really explains what we're all supposed to do when we realize we've disappointed God. Take a look at this story Jesus tells. He starts out, he describes the audience and that's listening to Jesus this way, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. In other words, the people in the crowd, they're they're confident that they're morally superior to other people. They felt like they were really good at being godly people. So much so they looked down on everyone else. Or we would say they judged uh, everyone else. And so Jesus speaks directly to them. But in the outskirts of this crowd are people who are morally bankrupt because they've made so many mistakes. And they're listening to hear what does Jesus have to say to all the good people. And so Jesus tells the story. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray which was very common in that culture because the Jews believed God lived and dwelled in the uh, temple. But notice Jesus uses two people on opposite, from opposite ends of the religious spectrum. One is a Pharisee. And you would expect a Pharisee to go to the temple and pray. The Pharisee was a religious leader. Pharisees would stand on the street corner and pray out loud. Moms would stop their children and say, look at him. That's who you should become like because Pharisees were thought to be such, such good people. And then... So Jesus says there's a Pharisee, and then Jesus says the other person here is a tax collector. And we hear tax collector, and we think IRS. This is way different. They hated tax collectors back then. Tax collectors cheated people. They, were, they lied. They were corrupt. They viewed tax collectors the way we would view a guy pushing drugs at a middle school. I mean, just slimy. The lowest of the low. And everybody in the audience thinks, okay, this story is not going to go well for the tax collector. And then look what Jesus says. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. Which was a common way to pray back then. This would be called a prayer of gratitude. Thanking God for what he's done. Thanking God for what he's provided for me. But look at what, look at what this guy prays. The Pharisee stood by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Normally they would fast uh, once a week. This guy's an overachiever. He fasts twice 
a, a, a week. Fasting means to go without food, to prepare yourself spiritually for, for God. He says, he says, I give a tenth of all I get. That means he tithed. He gave back to God by giving a tithe to the local uh, temple. So the guy does everything we would expect a religious person to do. But instead of praying a prayer of gratitude toward God, here's what he prays. God, thank you for me. God, thank you that I'm just such a good person and, you know, I always do what I'm supposed to do. God, thank you for myself. You know, can you imagine, can you imagine a, a prayer like that, hearing a prayer? Like, can you imagine if I came, in, came up here, you know, one weekend, I said, all right, let me lead us in prayer, everybody. You know, bow your heads. And, um, and, and I just pray and I say, God, I just thank you for how awesome I am. I just, I just had a great week. Did everything I was supposed to do, answered all my phone calls, returned all my emails, even some I didn't want to. I went ahead and returned them anyway. God, thank you for myself. Can you imagine that? <laughs> That's how this guy prayed. That's how the Pharisee prayed. But then the tax collector takes his turn. And Jesus says the tax collector stood at a distance. And the reason he stood at a distance is because he didn't think he deserved to be there. And so he stood, stood as far away as, as he could. And he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But beat his breast, which is a sign of desperation, also a sign of submission. He beat his breast, and look what he prayed. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Anytime you see that word mercy or the word grace, it means to ask God for something that we don't deserve. And this is not just what this tax collector prayed. Did you know this has become a famous prayer, a common prayer in the early church, a common prayer in monasteries where monks pray this over and over. God have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, in my own prayer life, sometimes I get in a rut. Sometimes my prayers just kind of become a routine or maybe they become like a shopping list of all the things that I need. And I'll go back to this one. Because you know what this prayer does? It compares us to nobody else. Only to God. It doesn't tout all the things that you need or all the things that you've done. It just says the truth. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says something that I think just must have stunned the crowd. Because they didn't think God had enough mercy for a tax collector. And so uh, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, he's going to say something positive about a tax collector. Rather than the other, the Pharisee, everybody thought he'd say something positive about the Pharisee, the tax collector went home justified before God. That, that word right there, justified, anytime you see that in the New Testament, that's a big word, a powerful word, an important uh, word. It means to be made right with. One person described it to me this way, the first time I learned this word, and it, and it stuck with me. They said, justified means it's just as if I never sinned. That's justified. And Jesus says the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went home justified with God. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Both these guys need to know that they've disappointed God and they need to make up for it. But they take two very different approaches to dealing with disappointing God. The Pharisee takes this approach. The Pharisee believes, you know what, I've done what I'm supposed to do. And as a result, I'm a pretty good person. And so because I'm such a good person, I'm good with God. That's the Pharisees' approach. The tax collector took a very different approach. Here's how the tax collector approached God. The reality is I'm not good enough. And there is nothing I can do to make up for it. And so I totally need God to be made right with him. 
See, this approach is dependent, entirely dependent on the person. This approach is entirely dependent on God. And Jesus says the Pharisee, because of his approach, received nothing from God. And the tax collector, because of his approach, received exactly what he asked for. And then Jesus closes with this punchline. He says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves will be exalted or lifted up. And here's what this means for us. When you find yourself laying awake at night and you can't sleep because you're thinking about your regrets, don't start tallying up, you know, all the things that you have done to try to make up for those things. Don't start touting your moral resume. Don't start comparing yourself to other people. Jesus, Jesus says, just stop, just stop. Because what you need for your guilt is grace. And the way that you get that is by being humble. See, grace is such a foreign concept to us because we don't offer it very well. We have strings attached to it. But I love the way, I like the way that the, the, the rock band U2 describes grace. Look at this uh, lyric. Grace, it's a name of a girl. It's also a thought that changed the world. Grace finds goodness in everything. She travels outside of karma. What once was hers, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. And see, what Jesus says to us in this parable is that you and I need grace. But the way that you get grace is not by proving yourself to God. It's by admitting that you need it. Now, I told you the bad news earlier. Here's the good news. The good news is that God loves you. God really loves you as is. And he's willing to be merciful to you. And so when our natural inclination is to, is to prove, you know, ourselves that, to him that we, can, that we can fix ourselves, God says, no, 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 humble yourselves and I will fix you and I will lift you up. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle John wrote a verse to a church uh, that he helped start and he described God. He said, God is love. The definition of God is love. He doesn't, notice he doesn't use the word powerful or righteous or judgmental here, God is loving and merciful, and he will lift you up. But let me be real candid with you, because there is a real enemy in our world today that doesn't want you to believe this message, that doesn't want you to believe this good news. And, you know, I know there are people who think, oh, I can't believe in Satan. You know, that's just too weird. I don't believe Satan is real. But you know what? I do believe that he's real. And the reason I do is because Jesus said he is. Jesus, Jesus said that uh, Satan is real. And I follow Jesus. But Satan doesn't have the power to create. And so what he does is he distorts this message that God loves you. Here's one way that he'll distort that message. He'll twist that message. He'll, he'll make it sound like this. He used to love you, you know, when you were young, you know, when you were a baby. And everybody loved you. Or when you went to catechism or Sunday school, you did everything that you were supposed to do. Then God loved you. But then he just begins to rattle off all the things that you did in high school and college. And that first marriage that failed. That shady business deal. That addiction that you've battled. And he says, yeah, God's love, but you missed your chance. But look at how Paul tells us the truth here. In Romans chapter 5. While we were still what? Sinners. Not when... Not when you were young or good or in church. When you were at your worst, 
Christ saw you and went to the cross and died for your sins because he loves you as is. I'll tell you another distortion the enemy loves to use against us, and that is, yeah, God loves, uh, uh, God is love, but, but God loves other people, just not, just not you. And to be honest, this is a lie that, that I've believed. I mean, I, I could, I found that I could stand up here and tell you that God loves you all day long, and then I would think to myself, I'm just not so sure about me because I'm not sure I've earned it. I'm not sure I've done enough. But then somebody directed me to this scripture that changed my thinking. And I hope it changes your thinking too. It's found in John chapter 17. It's a prayer Jesus has with his, Jesus says to his heavenly father, our heavenly father. Look at this conversation. Look at what Jesus says. That the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Did you know that God loves you as much as Jesus that's what that says. God loves every person in this room as much as God loves Jesus. And so don't let the enemy distort the truth. God loves you. If you continue reading Luke chapter 18, Jesus finishes this story about the tax collector and the Pharisee. And then he says something. He says that we should, we should approach God like a child. I've got uh, three children. Maybe you have children. And something that I've noticed about my children is that they don't really have any problem approaching me and asking me for things, you know, asking me to buy things, asking me to, to give them things. And they don't expect to pay me back. And I don't want them to pay me back because I love to say yes to my kids. I love to give things to my kid. And I'm far from a great father. And so imagine how much more God loves to say yes to his children. God loves to say yes to you because he is a perfect, loving father. I think what Jesus is, is, is telling us to do in this, in this story and in this chapter is to approach God and ask for mercy. And so I want to challenge two groups of people here today. First of all, some of you have never really approached God this way, the tax collector approach. You know that you've disappointed God, but maybe you thought the Pharisee approach was the way to go. You told yourself, I'm going to just spend the rest of my life, you know, uh, paying this off and making up for the things that I've done wrong. But Maybe you realize that'll lead to exhaustion, not joy. And that'll take you further away from God. Maybe it's time for you to ask for mercy and believe. God will give it to you because he really loves you as is. Others of us here, we follow Jesus. Maybe you followed him for a short time. Maybe you followed him for a long time. And when you decided to start following Jesus, you took the approach of the tax collector. You realized there's nothing I can do to make up for these things. That, that I've done wrong. I'm in total need of God to be made right with him. And you humbled yourself and God forgave all of your sin. But over time, without even realizing it, maybe you've started taking the approach of the Pharisee because it's really difficult to deal with regret after we start following Jesus. You want to, you know, try and do good things to keep God happy, to try to Make up for, for these things. But here's my challenge for you today. Remember, God's not indifferent towards you. God's highly interested in you every single day because of what Jesus did. And rest in the reality that at one point, you know, God was sad and, and disappointed in, in you. But God's no longer sad or disappointed or angry with you. 
because of what Jesus did. Remember, you are justified. It's just as if I never sinned. And so rest in that reality that God is pleased with you. God's happy with you. God loves you on your good days and your bad days because of what Jesus uh, did. And so when you lay in bed wondering, you know, am I okay with God? Does, does God love me? Don't rattle off all the things that you've done or need to do. Rest in the truth that God is loving and merciful. And when we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. Here's a great verse for insomnia that I think sums up what we're talking about. Since we, Paul says, since we have been justified. Remember that word? Through faith. Look at this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's rest in that reality as we share communion and as we uh, hear this next uh, song. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your incredible grace and mercy extended toward us. I thank you that as we cry out to you and admit that we are a sinner, you, you have mercy and you lift us up. And God, I, I want us right now to just take a moment for everybody in this room to just quietly in our minds admit that to you. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, for some of us, that's the first time we've ever taken that approach to you. And said that. And I pray that they would make you the leader and the forgiver of their life. For some, we've said that before, and maybe we've just forgotten, and we've gotten onto this treadmill of religious activity, religious superiority, trying to learn more and do more and be better, and somehow make you love us. But God, it's already there. You love us as is. And so we, may we simply receive it and believe it to be true to know your love in our life. God, right now as we move into a time of communion, we want to say thank you for your incredible grace given to us. May we just take these moments and think about what you did to provide that. We want to rest in that reality. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to move into a time of communion. And I want to invite the ushers to come forward and pass the trays. If this is all new to you and you want to take a pass on it, that's fine. But our communion is, is open to anybody that says yes to Jesus. It's for those of us who follow Jesus to once again remember what he did for us as we take communion and uh, as we continue to think and pray about what God has done for us.